If you would be opening your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. For a few moments tonight, I would like for us to consider one of the most notable events in the life of our Lord. It doesn't take up that much space within the written word itself, but it is one of the most important things, at least to me as I study through the Bible, that has been left for us concerning His life. Notice Matthew 17, 1 through 8. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias, talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses and one for Elias. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud, which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. I think if we're going to study this portion of Jesus' life, for us to get the best idea of what the Holy Spirit has left for us, I think we need to kind of look at the background just a little bit. Look at the things and events that had led up to this point in history. Previously, before the Lord had taken Peter, James, and John upon this mountain, He had had a discussion with them. And... He was talking to them, and the topic was who He was. Who was Jesus? We see that in Matthew chapter 16. We remember the story. They were coming into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, and He asked them that very question. Who do men say that I am? And with the voice of Peter, the disciples in consensus concluded that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Matthew 16, 16. Matthew went on to say, verse 21, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto His disciples how that He must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Well, the issue that Peter had was this, was with this, that particular statement and that line of thinking was he didn't go along with it. He didn't agree with that. He did not want... Jesus to go into the city and be murdered. He, he was not accepting of that. He had a hard time digesting that very thought, hadn't he? He protested strongly. He could not imagine that this man, to whom he had dedicated his life and to whom he had just confessed to be the Son of God, that he would go in and allow men to murder him. In fact, Matthew called it a rebuke, Matthew 16, 22. How could he die at the hands of godless men? He had just confessed who he was. But Jesus' response to Peter was 
very strong and very clear. It was very clear. He said, Get thee behind me, Satan. He also said, Thou art an offense unto me. He was offensive to Christ because Peter was placing Jesus in a position to where he was being tempted to sin. Jesus, like any other human, normal individual that understood life and death and things of that nature, he didn't want to go to the cross as far as his human side. He didn't want to go suffer in the ways that he knew he would suffer. So it was a, it took great effort on his part to be able to withstand the temptation of not doing that. And here Peter is, all of a sudden, placing him in a position where it would have been easily, uh, easy for him to say, you know what, Peter, you're right. So he said, get thee behind me, Satan, because you are an offense to me. Don't cause me to stumble. Don't give place to the devil. Not unlike in the wilderness when Satan tried to encourage our Lord to to turn from his earthly mission and accept the role of an earthly king. But he didn't do that either. Christ warned Peter. He said, For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those things that be of men. He was talking about those men who ignored the plan of God. That very plan that was from the foundation of the world. From, in fact, eternity. Ephesians 1, verse 4. Some men... Or some people may believe that Jesus was harsh in his dealing with Peter on that occasion, but he had already spoke to those men. He had already described to his disciples exactly what it meant to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ when the church would be established. They knew full well the road that they had chosen. Christ said, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, Matthew 16 24. Also want us to notice that at the time of this transfiguration, he was accompanied by three of his closest and dearest friends. We might say his closest friends. Not that he didn't love the other apostles, not that he didn't have uh, friends outside of that group of men that he loved. We know that he loved Lazarus and Martha and Mary, but these were probably his very closest friends upon the earth. And only they were permitted to see certain special events. We recall the raising of Jairus' daughter, uh, Mark 5, 21 through 37. They were the only three there. We recall when the Lord had gone into the garden and He had pleaded, the writer of Hebrews says, with great tears and crying to allow the cup of death to pass from Him. Now we understand a little more about His rebuke to Peter, right? He didn't want to go through that. But yet those three men were with him, and they were the three that even went a little further into the garden with him, Mark 14, 33-36. And all of those events that these men witnessed as they followed Christ about and learned from this man, no doubt left a great impression upon them. Now we understand, especially as we read in their writings, this transfiguration this great event of something special that only they had witnessed. James, of course, having been martyred early in the history of the church, Acts 12, verse 2, we do not have any letters written by his hand that make up the canon of the New Testament. But the other two men, 
Both of them have mentioned in their writings. John declared this. He said, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Peter reminded his readers of the exact same event. And it struck him. This is many years later. He said, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice to Him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with Him in the holy mount. 2 Peter 1, 16-18 Peter remembered. It made an impression upon him. It impressed John, the wonderful things that they saw. So let's learn a few things from that. Let's talk a little more about the message from the mountain and exactly what that event meant in that time in history and what it means in our time today. I want us to start with the transfigured Christ. The one of whom the whole of the Bible is written about. From the beginning to the end, it's about Jesus Christ and man's salvation based upon what He would do when He came to earth. Luke's account records for us the purpose that Jesus and these three men went up to the mountain. It was, in fact, to pray. You know, I, it's, it strikes me when we look in Matthew eight twenty. He had not where to lay His head, but He always had a place to pray, didn't He? Always was able to find somewhere to pray to the to the God of heaven. They didn't have any earthly things in this life, but he could always pray. The night and the mountain were available to him, and he took full advantage of that opportunity to come before God and spill out his heart to him. Sometimes that is all we can do, isn't it? Sometimes all we can do is pray to God, plead on our behalves or the behalves of others, and then allow Him to handle the situation. His refuge was in prayer, and He found prayer to be one of the greatest strengths in His life, just as we should. Luke recorded that while He was in the act of prayer, the presentation of the bodily change was witnessed, Luke 9.29. While they were praying, all of a sudden this great change came upon Christ. Luke recorded... Uh, in his statement, and he uses this word transfigured. Well, that comes from a word that means metamorphosis. That's where we get our word. A great change. It was something very noticeable. This very word is also found in Romans chapter 12 and 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and it is used to identify the change that is to take place in the life of the Christian after having obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. The exact same word. That demonstrates to us that the gospel is a changing force. It is a powerful thing. And it is to leave its mark upon us. Now this event temporarily changed His appearance into the heavenly glory. John 17 verse 5. But I, know, I want us to notice it wasn't just a little bit of a change. It wasn't something that you had to pay very close attention to in order to understand that there was a change. Over time, when we uh, 
we're around people that we love, and, and as we grow older, we change. As our children grow up, they change. But if we're around each other all the time, we don't notice those changes quite so clearly, do we? Perhaps we're gone for a little while, and, and then we come back, especially with children, and we see them maybe six months or a year later, and it looks like they've grown six inches, doesn't it? Well, see, these men lived with the Lord. They were with Him on a daily basis. But they noticed this change because it was a very prominent change. It grabbed their attention. Matthew added the detail that his face began to shine as the sun. We learned that Mark said his clothes were white as snow, so no fuller on earth can white them. Now during the life of these men, a fuller, F-U-L-L-E-R, was someone who bleached cloth. They would take wool and they would uh, uh, gather it, and it would be dirty, and they would bleach that wool, that cloth made from the wool, or whatever the case may be, and it would be as white as snow. And they were very good at what they did. But it didn't compare to the clothes that Jesus wore, because He had the glory of heaven shining down upon Him. Jesus' divine nature, His outward appearance, they matched perfectly, didn't they? His outward appearance matched what He was on the inside. And for a temporary moment, these men got to see the veiled glory of Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews said, By a new and living way which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say His flesh, Hebrews 10.20. He was in human form, but this, trans, uh, this transfiguration gave them an opportunity to see what His heavenly form was like. The, uh, I want us to notice that this glory that we read about in the New Testament was that same kind of a glory that God's presence uh, presented above the tabernacle when Moses built it. The very presence of God. Jesus Christ is and was God. I want us to notice also, though, that His appearance, it did not change so much as He was not able to be recognized. I think that's an important note. It must have been even more glorious as the events of the night continued, however long this took, however long the conversation lasted uh, with God and, or with Christ and, and the two men that showed up. But the transfiguration did go from that change in His physical appearance to two visitors that did come and speak with Him. The closest friends that Christ had on this earth was given another glimpse, another very precious moment that no one else was privileged to see. These two heavenly visitors appeared. Who were they? What was their purpose? Why were they there? Well, let's notice a few of those questions. Two of the great Old Testament figures appeared to Jesus Christ. We have Moses and Elias. They appeared in glory and they were talking to Jesus. We have Moses, the great lawgiver from Sinai. And then we have Elijah, the, the man who was translated from this body into the bosom of Abraham in a chariot with horses of fire and a whirlwind. We read about that in 2 Kings 2, verse 11. I think it's monumental to notice that Moses had been dead 1,500 years when this event occurred, Deuteronomy 34, 5 through 7. Elijah had departed this earth some 900 years before the transfiguration upon this mountain. 
What does that tell us? That these men were both alive. They were speaking and talking with Jesus. What do we know about that? What does that let us know? Why were these men here? They were there because God is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. This world, this life is very temporary. Once it's over, we move on to the next one. There are a lot of people in the world that would have us to believe that we do not have an eternal soul. There's nothing to mankind except this physical body. Nothing can be further from the truth. And we see it in this account. You have two men that had lived in the past speaking with Jesus. Jesus said this, Matthew 22, 32 through 33, But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So from this great record, I want us to take away something from this very fact that sometimes perhaps we overlook. There is life after death. Men do not cease to exist when physical death happens. There is consciousness after death. And we can identify each other. Moses and Elijah knew that they were in existence. They understood that Christ existed. They recognized Christ. They recognized each other. There is life after this physical world is over. And their identity was revealed to those three apostles. That's very important for us to remember that. We have to prepare for that life. What would have happened if Moses had not repented of the sins that he committed against God as they were going through that wilderness, he surely would not have been standing with the Lord of Lords on that diet, would he? See, you have to be prepared, don't we? We have to be prepared for that. But why were they there? What those men witnessed was yet another demonstration that Christ was exactly who He said He was. And it continues, and it continues, and it continues. In all three accounts of the transfiguration, we are given the three names of those men who were there. All three accounts of those. That's, that's important. There were also three heavenly witnesses. You have Elijah, you have Moses, and you have the voice of God. So what does all that mean? Because of that, the Old Testament law that required that something was attested to be a fact in the presence of two or three witnesses, that law was fulfilled on that night. At the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. Deuteronomy 19.15 And it was both in heaven and in earth. Christ was who He said He was. So what did their presence indicate? Both Elijah and Moses knew of the impending death of Jesus. They weren't caught off guard. They understood because that's what their conversation was about, wasn't it? But why were they having a conversation about Christ's death? Why were men who had been one dead for 1,500 years and another dead for 900 years, why were they so interested in Christ's death? That's a good question, isn't it? That's one that I believe we can answer. I want us to think about it this way. It was vitally important to Moses and Elijah that Christ go to the cross. Why? Because they wanted their sins forgiven just as we need ours forgiven. 
Their sins were forgiven in prospect of the cross. Unless Christ goes to the cross, their sins are not taken out of the way. It all hinged upon Christ's faithfulness to carry out what God asked Him to do. The writer of Hebrews said this, And almost all things are purged, or by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. Hebrews 9.22 He continued saying this, For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. He's talking about those animal sacrifices. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? If they could take away sin permanently, we would still be doing it today. Because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins, but in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sin every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. Of all the great men in the history of the Old Testament, why were those two men chosen? Why those two men? Well, it seems to me that Moses was a representative of the law and Elijah was a representative of the prophets. Now remember what Jesus said. He said He came to fulfill both the law and the prophets. And when Christ marched to the cross, when He allowed Himself to be murdered on our account, that law was fulfilled. And God's people would then be under a new covenant. Notice what Isaiah said. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Jeremiah 31, 31. Of course, within the transfiguration, they learned, and, and so do we, that the old law was not going to be the covenant wherein God's people would be bound to Him any longer. It would be this new covenant that was coming, the one that when Christ died upon the cross, when He established the Lord's church in Acts chapter 2, the first Pentecost following His resurrection, was that covenant that would bring all men unto God. Another important aspect of this account to me is that they learned that. These men learned that, but how did they learn it? They learned it through the testimony of the Father Himself. The God of heaven made that statement. He allowed them to understand exactly who was the author and the finisher of their salvation. I want us to see that as we read this account that Peter was so impressed. No doubt the other men were as well. But Peter was so impressed with what was unfolding right before his eyes that he had to make a reply to that, didn't he? He had to say something. And he said this, Lord, it is good for us to be here, Matthew 17, 4. I preached a sermon some years ago and and that was my title, it, it is good to be here. At least he recognized that, didn't he? He made a few mistakes, but he did understand it was good to be there. But being the one who on occasion spoke before he thought, he made a statement and a suggestion that he should have never made. He wanted them to build three tabernacles. One for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for the Lord. Well, that wasn't going to work, was it? Mark recorded at least one of the reasons for uh, Peter making this statement. It was because he didn't know what to say. I imagine that was correct. You see something like that and it's hard to put your mind around certain things to, to be able to, to digest that. So he didn't really know what to say. 
And he was greatly afraid. And I can understand that. I, I believe standing there before Christ and, and seeing two men that had been dead for centuries, that would elicit some fear from you. I think also it teaches us that, that man is not worthy to judge the fitness of spiritual things. We must leave that up to God. And we need to be careful about when we make comments, right? When we, when we make suggestions. Peter would have done well if he had uh, abided by the words that James spoke. He said, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow the wrath. But really the problem with this suggestion wasn't that Peter spoke out of turn. It wasn't that he made a comment. It was that he was taking the Lord, the one who would die for the sins of all mankind, and he was bringing him down to the same plane as Moses and Elijah. Two men. Two men just like we are. People. People who made mistakes. People who loved God, but nonetheless they were people and they had faults in their lives. See, we can't do that, can we? We cannot place anyone on the same plane as our Savior in the world. See, that's a very prevalent problem in our, in our world today, isn't it? Men have been trying to remove God from His throne from almost the very beginning of time. And we can see in this account that that's not going to happen. But because of Peter's reply, God made a very strong rebuke. A cloud overshadowed the group, and before Peter could even finish his statement, God made a pronouncement from heaven. He said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. We're not listening to Moses any longer. We're not listening to Elijah. They were great men. And they fulfilled a great duty. But that wasn't the first time that the Father of heaven and earth had spoken those words, was it? We remember that in Mark chapter 1, verse 11, when the Lord submitted to baptism, not because He needed to have His sins washed away, but to fulfill prophecy. That statement also alludes to Christ's role as the prophet who would supersede Moses, Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18. Moses was told, I'm going to raise up a prophet like unto you. You get down toward the end of that passage and he says, listen to him. Hear this prophet that's coming. And now it's unfolding right before the very eyes. And Moses is standing there the man who the prophecy was given to, and he was able to see it fulfilled. See, when we begin to tear apart the little details, can you imagine how wonderful that was for Moses? To be able to stand in the very presence of Christ, knowing He is the one. He is the one that will take away the sins of Moses and the sins of Elijah. And it demonstrated that Christ is our authority. The writer of Hebrews talked about that in Hebrews chapter 1, first three verses. He talked about those past people who God had worked through, but he said, now, now, he speaks through his son Jesus. Not Moses, not Elijah, not the law and the prophets. But there's something else I want us to take away from this interaction, this rebuke, this testimony that, that God had given. God will rebuke us. But He never leaves us without hope. He gave reassurance to Peter and those others. The reaction. The reaction of Peter 
and James and John at the, at the sound of God's voice was the exact same reaction that has ever happened when men have come into contact with God in this way. It was met with fear and trembling. They fell down. They weren't looking up. Obviously, they had their face towards the ground. They were afraid. But it didn't end there, did it? God never punishes. God never rebukes unless He also gives some hope if we choose to take it. We go back to the garden. The first couple cast out of the garden for sinning against God, but there was hope. God was within His plan to destroy the earth with water, but there was hope. Israel was, was torn apart, divided kingdom, but there was hope. There's always been reassurance. There's always been hope if we would take it. The tender touch of Jesus as He came over to those men and laid their fears. Notice what He said. And they're just as relevant these words today as they were then. He said, Arise and be not afraid. We need to have the strength, the fortitude, and the willingness to arise and be not afraid. To live in this world the way Jesus has asked us to live. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. Another proof that He is who He said He was. No longer was Moses standing there. No longer was the great prophet Elijah standing there. They were subservient to this man. It was Jesus. They lifted up their eyes and they saw Him. The problem is too many people today are not looking for Jesus and they certainly aren't finding Him. But we need to accept Him. We need to allow Him to come into our lives. Notice what the writer of Hebrews said. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's look to Jesus. Paul admonished, he said, If you be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, set your affections on those things above, not on things on the earth. Colossians 3, 1-2 through We learn so much, I believe, from this great account of this very special event that happened in the life of the transfigured Christ. We learn from the two heavenly visitors and we certainly learn from the testimony of God. Just as Christ presented the glory of God in His outward appearance so that it would match His inward appearance, that's what we must do. We have to be transfigured. We have to be changed. That's what Paul said in Romans and into the Corinthian letter, we have to be transfigured. Obviously, we're going to be transfigured differently than the way Christ was. But we still have to go through that metamorphosis. We have to go through that change. We have to be what God wants us to be. And we can do that. We can take that message from the mountain. In order to be transformed, we have to be members of God's family, don't we? We understand how to do that. Faith that Jesus Christ is who He said He was. We've seen that proof in this passage. Belief that He is who He said He was. Repentance of past sins. We see even in this very account, Peter made a mistake. Obviously, 
He had repented of that and he had stood before God with hope and reassurance even though he'd made a mistake and he took care of that problem. Confession that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Prior to this happening, we see that taking place. And then, of course, in the dispensation under which we live, we're baptized for the remission of sins. And then we live a faithful life. Sometimes we do that, yet we get off track a little bit. We still need to come back to the Lord. We still need to take advantage of His reassurance and of His hope. There's never a rebuke without hope. We can always change as long as we live. If you have need to answer the Lord's invitation this hour, whether through initial obedience or confession and repentance of sin after having obeyed the gospel, let that be known as we stand and as we sing.